0: So I almost killed my husband Rob one time when we were broken up, uh, literally, not figuratively. He has a very serious peanut allergy, and the last time that we broke up before we eventually got engaged and married, uh, he it was just before he was going to Yellowstone to work with Crew Summer Project there. Um, And the thing that we broke up over was really something that became a non-issue eventually. It wasn't because we didn't care for each other. It was a logistics issue involving our jobs. But at the time, it felt insurmountable. So when we split up, we were heartbroken because we still were very much in love. I should say I was still very much in love. Uh, Rob didn't tell me he loved me until we got engaged. But I told him months before that. And you can imagine my enthusiasm when his response was, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So we broke up, not because of the thank you thing, because of the job thing. Um, but we, you know, it, it was painful because we, we still loved each other. It was an unspoken love, admittedly. Um, and, and so I made him uh, a care package for his drive to Yellowstone, and it had, you know, some power bars, some five-hour five hour energy drinks, and a, a Call of the Wild by Jack London on audio CD, and we parted with streams of tears. So fast forward. Uh, a few months, and Rob is in Yellowstone, five miles into a ten-mile hike, so as far from camp as possible. And he pulls out one of the power bars that I gave to him in his, you know, breakup goodie bag, and he eats it. And his, he starts to feel weird. His 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 mouth starts to tingle. His throat starts to get tight. I hadn't I hadn't checked the label. I always check the label but I was distraught remember streams of tears couldn't see the labels through all of my crying I hadn't checked the label and he'd eaten it and he started to have this, re- this, this reaction and, uh, and the guys who were hiking with him actually had to run back to, to find some other hikers that they had passed to see if they had any Benadryl he took 12 Benadryl in all and then just waited and he waited laying on the ground of, of the forest uh, grown men praying over him he just waited to see if it would be enough He lived, as you might have noticed, Um, and I'm so grateful for that, first of all, because he's my husband and I got married to him and I love him, but second, because there is like no way the Yellowstone Police Department would have bought my story. Oh, you made him a care package for your breakup, sure you did. (laughs) You are going to jail, murderous. (laughs) <laughs> so he lived, any, Now, anytime that um, he really wants to buy something that I think is a waste of our money, like a piece of cold weather camping gear for Florida, which is ridiculous, he'll just look at me and go, <sighs> 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 works every time. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why God made people to get hungry and thirsty? It, it, it certainly seems that it makes us a little bit more vulnerable than really that we need to be. So we're in our series called Rhythm, which Gary mentioned, where we're looking at spiritual disciplines, and these are traditions, some very ancient, that help us grow in our faith and intimacy with God. This week, our topic is prayer and fasting, but I'm going to tell you up front that we are going to spend most of our time examining fasting. Um, we will talk a little bit about prayer as well, um, and the reason for that is not that I want to sidestep prayer. I certainly don't, um, but but I don't want to keep you here for hours. Uh, Gary said I couldn't anyway, um, to, to talk about both of these topics, and, and and I don't think one sermon is enough to do justice to either of these topics, let alone both. So I chose to focus on fasting first because I think it's probably the, the less explored of the two from the pulpit but also because we've actually done quite a bit of teaching on prayer recently and I feel like I would do more good to point you uh, to some of those teachings instead of try to cram two sermons into one. Abby Abbott did um, a a seminar on precarious prayer which is fantastic. You can find it online if you want to take a listen to that. So if you have your Bibles with you you can open up to John chapter 6 beginning in verse 25 for a passage which says nothing about prayer nor fasting. Who doesn't like a challenge? Um, little context on what's going on here. Jesus in chapter five has just begun to hint at his deity. Uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath, which really upset the religious leaders. Um, and so here in chapter six, we see this shift from, from the people's hesitation about Jesus as Messiah to their outright rejection of him. Chapter six records a a very significant miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus takes a young man's lunch and he blesses it and it magically becomes uh, enough food to feed 5,000 people, which by the way, would probably be more like 20,000 people because that number would have only reflected the men in the crowd. So um, he performs this miracle and this miracle not only demonstrates his deity, but it sets the stage for a very challenging conversation that he's about to have with the people. So challenging, in fact, that many of his own disciples desert him on this point. So the day following that miracle, the people come looking for Jesus again, and this is their conversation beginning in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the sign I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we can see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then down in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is God's word. So Jesus is making an outright claim to his divinity here, and the people are enraged because blasphemy, which is what anyone who didn't believe in Jesus's divinity would have assumed this was, is a, is a crime so heinous to the Jews that it was actually punishable by death according to the law of Leviticus. Now, just the day before, when he had miraculously fed them all, they tried to make him their king by force. But then here, they're trying to kill him because the, the people wanted an earthly king. They wanted a military deliverer, someone to, to provide miraculous provision from God. If, if Jesus had only wanted to be king on earth, they may have welcomed him with open arms but here he claims to be king in heaven as well, and they want none of it. They don't want what he's offering. Even, even in that part where they say, sir, always give us this bread, they're, they're still picturing physical loaves. Or maybe they're picturing victory over the, the Roman rulers who are taking all their tax money, and maybe they'd have that back and they could buy their own bread. What, whatever, either, the, either way, they are not picturing spiritual salvation so much as physical deliverance. They wanted manna more than Messiah. So what does all this have to do with fasting? Hunger, again, makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable because all emptiness drives us toward being filled. And we may choose to fill ourselves with things that are dangerous, things that are outright deadly to us. So so why did God design us this way? Why did he design us to hunger and thirst? Not all living things do, you'll remember. Plants take sunlight and chlorophyll, and through some act of sorcery, make it into food. Uh, weird things like Venus flytraps do some combination of, of photosynthesis and digestion, which, in my opinion, makes them no more trustworthy than porcelain dolls. But but human beings need bread, and human beings get hungry. Why did God make us this way when He could have easily designed us to be less needy? So my favorite and the most satisfying answer I've, I've heard to this question comes from a book called The Hunger of God in which the author writes, why bread? Why hunger and thirst? My answer is simple. He created bread so that we would have some idea of what the son of God is like when he says, I am the bread of life. I love that. Food is a symbol the way we feel when we deprive ourselves of it, the the grumbling, the, the, the need, the desperation for even one bite, this is a reflection of the condition of our soul when it is deprived of communion with Jesus. When we fast, our body's yearning for bread reflects our soul's yearning for the bread of life. I did a A seven-day juice fast not too long ago, and not for any particular spiritual reason, but uh, actually to see if uh, it would affect my rheumatoid arthritis positively. And my husband, who is truly my hero, decided to make this process easier for me. He was going to do the fast along with me, even though he had no good reason to. And so we were just really miserable. Um if if not eating weren't bad enough we had to drink this odious concoction of juiced vegetables that tasted like death and cabbages it was disgusting and 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 we would go to bed really early, like right after my daughter we would go to bed so really early because when it's 8 p.m. and you realize that you are not allowed to have chips and guac what is there to stay awake for <laughs> you know I, I i realized at that point that television is actually something i only do to pass the time while i eat so what was interesting to me about uh, this experience was that while I had no particular spiritual agenda for, for this experiment, it, it ended up producing some of the most um, interesting and productive conversations about faith that Rob and I had had in a while. Because we realized how enmeshed our idea of celebration was with the act of eating. And so we had to learn new ways to celebrate and enjoy the company of our friends Because in the absence of the comfort that we want most, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to discover other avenues of satisfaction. Emptiness drives us towards sustenance. We will find it somewhere. And fasting is just an opportunity to strip away all the other somewheres that prevent us from moving toward God. The spiritual discipline of fasting above all is an opportunity to learn a new avenue of satisfaction. The spiritual discipline of fasting is an opportunity to feast on Jesus. Now, if you can't fast physically, you have a condition or you have medication that you take that prevents you from foregoing food, please don't hear me say that you're never going to experience God. You you certainly will. Um, Fasting is, is simply the forfeiture of any good thing for a period of time. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be food. And it's not essential to salvation. Despite how often it was practiced in the Old Testament, fasting was only uh, required for one specific occasion, the day of atonement. But that said, Jesus does seem to assume that his, his followers will continue this practice. One day, some of his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath to eat and, and people approached them and asked Jesus why his disciples weren't fasting like the, the disciples of the Pharisees. And Jesus responds in Mark 2, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So there's no mandate for fasting. It's not essential to salvation. But if Jesus assumes his followers will continue to do it after he ascends, then it certainly must have value for us who seek to be his disciples also. Paul writes in Corinthians, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If the idea of feasting on Jesus is like a touch too weird for you to get excited about, then I want you to focus first on, on the most immediate and, and eye opening benefit that we reap from the discipline of fasting. When we forego our food, when we practice the discipline of fasting, we begin to see what we are mastered by. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In A Hunger for God, it says, the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. I really think that, that, that God's stiffest competition for our hearts is, is not coming from his enemies, but from his gifts. When Rob and I uh, did Whole30 the first time, Actually, I did hole 30, he did hole 17, but that's a story for another day. Um, when we did it, I actually found it to be more difficult than like a strict water fast. Apparently, <laughs> apparently it's easier for me to make no choices rather than to make good choices. So day after we finish hole 30, I fly up to Ohio... Uh, to go on vacation with my extended family. And one of the highlights of Geneva on the Lake, Ohio, is Madsen Donuts. It's this little hole-in-the-wall donut shop. And, and every day, we rotate the family member who gets up early and goes out to Madsen and gets two dozen or so delicious Madsen donuts for, like, the 13 of us that are up there that week. And I know that when you finish Whole 30, you're supposed to, like, slowly reintroduce food groups, you know? Like, day one is legumes, whatever those are. Day two is grains. Day three, yeah, you're not in your head. I see you, Sarah. Um, day three is uh, dairy and your desire to eat food again. But let's be honest, you didn't do that. I didn't do that. Nobody, nobody actually does that. After 30 days of agony, you probably drove yourself to Publix and bought a well-deserved box of chicken tenders, which in truth are sprinkled with the dust of a thousand fairies. Um, Rob, Rob broke his Whole30 with a buffalo chicken grilled cheese sandwich from Toasted so that was a real experience for the whole family that night. <laughs> so I admit it. I ate the Madsen donut, and, and not the boring cake donut. I ate the chocolate-frosted, cream-filled Long John, and then I ate the boring cake donut because nobody likes those anyway. So it really, it was like a public service snacking. And, and I really think that had I stopped at one, I really believed that my stomach would have allowed me to keep it. <laughs> but, alas... I lost both of my donuts to some bushes that we passed on our walk to the beach and you'd think that that would have taught me my lesson but I would be lying to you if I didn't say that after the sweet relief hit my stomach my first thought was, gee I really feel like I could have another. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? I mean really when some good thing like food is offered to me I would rather have none of it than have to moderate how much of it I have? That's crazy but I get a taste and I just wanna keep going until I'm sick. And we certainly don't do this with food only. We live in a, in a moment in history when every good thing has become a potentially addictive substance. It's not just food. It's not just uh, alcohol and drugs, television. I remember when I used to have to wait week to week to see the next episode of Lost. Just tell me what's in the hatch, John Locke, you know? But it wasn't excruciating because it's all I knew. It wasn't an annoyance. In fact, I think the anticipation probably increased my satisfaction in the 47 minutes that I did get to watch every week. Moderation probably increased my enjoyment. I don't even know if I like the shows that I watch now because I never have to wait long enough to see if I miss them. You can fast from food, and I recommend that you do, especially if you've never tried it, but with some cautions that we'll talk about later, But, but you can also fast From the other pleasures of life that you enjoy, you can fast from food, TV, social media, relationships, sleeping in, mountain dew. When we willingly abstain, then we show our desires to not be necessities and not, in many cases, even in our best interest. And not because God doesn't want us to enjoy these things. He could have made all food bland, but He didn't, He made it delicious. He wants us to enjoy these things. When we receive his good gifts with gratitude, we glorify him. But when we abstain from his good gifts with gratitude, we also glorify him. Either can be a form of worship depending on the company that we keep. So the benefit of fasting is not to to, to prove ourselves worthy, it's not to gain favor with our master, but to gain insight as to whether or not anything has mastered us. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I met a young man in regroup who confessed um, that he had become addicted to the euphoria that we experience at the beginning of a new relationship. The, the excitement, the, the, the hopefulness, the infatuation, the lust. But he'd reached a point of utter despair because the feeling never lasted. And he would jump from relationship to relationship, chasing after this feeling that would disintegrate once he had it in his hands. Those feelings, that excitement, the euphoria, the butterflies, those are God's gifts. Feelings are God's gifts, but these too can begin to master us if we begin to worship them instead of the one who gives them. And I think it's easy to miss the danger there. It's a little easier to see it when we're worshiping something like money or power or success or prestige. I think we even find those things to be more sinister because we've been taught, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil and all that. But, But the love of feelings, can that be so bad? I mean, God gives them to us. We can't control if we have them. So how can we be expected to fast from our feelings? Well, you can't. You can't make yourself feel or not feel something. If you could, I would love driving on Colonial and hate carbohydrates. You can't can't control a feeling, but you do have control over whether or not you indulge in it. You have control over whether or not you indulge in it. Feelings are like cats. Men refuse to name them and hope they go away on their own. Just kidding, that's a joke. Every time I did that last service, and they're like, oh, oh. No, it's a joke. Okay, sorry. Feelings are like cats because you have no control over whether or not one will surprise you on your porch when you walk outside in the morning. But the ones that come back are the ones that you feed. The ones that get strong are the ones that you feed and groom and fondle. And we do have control over that. So if you know that there is a good gift that you may be in danger of loving more than the good giver, just fast. Try it. And if you don't think that there's anything that has mastered you, try fasting from food. And when you get cranky, which you inevitably will, then whatever it is that you want to turn to for comfort and relief, ask God to make that hunger secondary to your hunger for him. Fasting exposes what has mastered us in prayer asks for God's mercy to loosen those bonds. I am the bread of life. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Fasting is not essential to salvation, but it is incredibly beneficial to growing in relationship and intimacy with God. If you if you feel like you're not experiencing God if you feel like you, you, you have outlived the euphoria of the beginning of that relationship, the excitement, the hope, if you feel like you're just going through the motions of your faith because you're not sure what else to do and you don't want to ask out loud if you still really believe all this stuff, if you have trouble getting to worship every week and you miss every other week because at some point it started to feel like a burden to get yourself here and not a blessing, then, then you may be empty of real food and real drink That may be the source of your feeling unfed, and no worship service, no lyric, no no pastoral care conversation, no sacrament, no Brene Brown book is going to snap you out of it because no gift of God can replace the presence of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says the Son of Man in Revelation, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's the offer. That's what's being offered to us when we forego our meals to feast on Jesus. He's waiting at the door to come in and dine with us. He, he has already given us avenues to experience his presence. They're already there, but, but our senses, like our days, are already so full. In The Hunger of God, it says your soul is so stuffed with small things that there is no room for the great. We're so overwhelmed. He's present with us always, but our senses are, are too saturated to perceive it. His fragrance is so soft that it is easily overpowered by the aroma of a pizza and his whisper so soft that it is drowned out by the boom of CNN. Fasting is inseparable from prayer because in fasting, we, we do the work of stripping away all of the sounds and smells and distractions so we can actually hear God. And then in prayer, we ask him to actually speak. When I first came through regroup, I was like really into mastering my appetites. And so I decided to do a week long water fast. Uh, and in retrospect, I had no business doing it first because you, you really shouldn't stop eating for a week without talking to some kind of medical professional. But second, uh, I didn't have any idea why I was doing it. I mean, I wasn't lamenting over my sin and asking for God to deal with it in me. I wasn't facing a a tough decision or preparing for a difficult season in ministry. I wasn't for the most part, even praying during my fast. I was just fasting. I think most, uh, most just to see if I could, to prove to myself that I had the power to do it. Once I'd gotten sobriety and regroup, um, and and by God's grace, uh, broken some of the deeply rooted patterns of sin and self-sabotage in my life, I became a little bit drunk on the power of my own will. I was was so surprised that I was capable of making better decisions, that making better decisions became a reward in and of itself that I sought after. I believe the, the clinical term for this is pride. So I decided to complete this week-long water fast for no reason other than to experience the self-satisfaction of believing that I was more disciplined than other people that I knew. And I observed Jesus's rules for the fast. Uh, You can find them in the Bible. It's like, don't talk to people about it. I didn't talk to people about it. I washed my face. Uh, I anointed my head with oil, so to speak, but I call it hairspray. And, And no one would have known that I was fasting until day three. Because on day three, I learned that but a portion of the water that we take in every day comes from the food we eat. And I had not sufficiently made up the difference by drinking any extra. So I woke up on day three severely dehydrated, so much so that I was physically ill. I could not hold down a, a teaspoon of water, a, a slice of banana. I was so sick. So I called Rob, who I'd been dating for less than a year at that point. I must have been super attractive. Uh, and I told him that I was going to die. So he said, great, I'll be there in five or ten minutes, which is funny because he lived like 25 minutes away in Avalon. So he picked me up, and, uh, and I had this bucket that I was clinging to like a cat on a pool raft. And when we pull up to the hospital, he tries to gently take the bucket away from me so so that I look less ridiculous walking into the emergency room in my pajamas with my bucket. Uh, And I'm like, no, don't touch my bucket. He's like, okay, keep your bucket. So we get in the hospital and they put me in a wheelchair with my bucket that's uh, not even the most embarrassing part of the story. And we get, they roll me into a room with a doctor and the doctor begins asking me questions. And I answer the questions, but I'm talking mostly into my bucket because I'm so sick. So he's like, so Kaylee, what, what, what seems to be the trouble today? And I'm like, ugh, I've been fasting for three days. And he's like, okay, so, so why have you been fasting? And what I should have said at that point is, well, doctor, you see, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and as an act of devotion to glorify his name, I've chosen to forego food for several days in order to better experience the, 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 the wonder of his presence. But no, that is not what I said. What I actually said, what I mumbled through through my writhing was, I, for religious purposes, <laughs> I told you before, I am the reason that people think Christians are weird. It's me. It's, it's my fault. They put two bags of IV fluids in me before I even regained the ability to produce tears. And before they would start my IV, um, the doctor says to me, listen, we're going to just, we're, just in case we're going to give you a pregnancy test. And I'm like, no, no, listen, I'm not pregnant. And he's like, okay, we have a lot of women come in here and they swear up and down that they're not pregnant. And it turns out they're pregnant. And I'm so sick and so out of sorts that I just snap at this man. And I'm like, well, do you have a lot of women come in here and swear they're not having sex, doctor? And he's like, we're gonna give you the test just in case. (laughs) I was so awful. I was so awful to him. Fasting reveals what has mastered us and what had mastered me was impatience and self-righteousness. I was so mean. That's what fasting unmasked in me when I stopped eating it revealed that perhaps I had not been mastered by food but I had been mastered by pride and anger when we encounter the normal obstacles and stresses of our lives and we don't eat or we don't self-medicate in another way then then those frustrations and those stresses remain and the only option is to deal with them another way or to ask for them to be dealt with in you Fasting isn't about proving to God that you're disciplined like I was trying to prove. It's, it's about making space to better hear from and experience him. So it's far better to fast only one meal and spend that time praying than to fast five days and pray for none of it. Because at the end of that time, you may only have learned that by sheer force of will, you can control your appetites, thus solidifying the illusion that we do not need assistance from God, which is very dangerous Pride and gluttony are both sins, but pride, I believe, is the more damaging of the two. We leave so little margin in our lives, in our, in our sensory experiences, to actually hear the still, small voice of God. We don't leave space for it, and this leaves our souls very empty. But listen, don't push that away. Don't medicate it don't numb it out with entertainment, lean into it. Because that emptiness that we experience can be God's gift. That emptiness that we mask with food or with TV or with relationships is an invitation to better experience God. This emptiness can be God's gift. It exposes our need our need to constantly be seeking the bread of life. This emptiness belies the idea that this world has everything that we need, that this world can satisfy us. This emptiness we feel forces us to look elsewhere than the places we always go to stuff ourselves sick with comfort and pleasure. We could, we could go our whole lives so full of the small things that we never recognize our need for the great one. Our flesh can be so filled that it masks a soul that is starving to death. And when we do that, we risk allowing God's gifts to keep us out of God's kingdom. C.S. Lewis writes, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Despite all of our hungers, despite all of our appetites, the thing that we need most to be filled with is the love and presence of Jesus Christ. We need it more than we need him to get help we need it more than we need to get better, more than we need her to pull through, more than we need a job, more than we need food and clothing. And hey, maybe that's easy for me to see, be- say because I'm not hungry or sick or naked, but I am damned without the salvation offered through the blood of Jesus. Because maybe I get that job or maybe I get that guy. She might get better. You might get all the goodness that you could possibly know what to do with, and on that day, what will that job or that guy do for you if you meet your maker? Death will come as a surprise to some of us, to me maybe. What could all the goodness on this earth do for me when I leave this earth behind? If food is a symbol of the sustenance our soul requires from God, then fasting in prayer is foregoing the symbol for the real thing. And he will come in and dine with us. A couple of practical notes. If you do decide to try fasting and you've never done it before, first, if you're fasting from food and you plan to go more than two days, I do recommend that you speak to a doctor about that first and then drink more water than you think you could possibly need. And if you plan to fast from some other good thing, pay close attention to the feelings and the frustrations that, that, that your fast brings out of you. That is, that is pure gold to your personal pursuit of Jesus. That's him speaking to you. We have people ask us all the time for books or curriculums uh, for their groups to study. They want more, uh, more material to feed, more curriculum to feed their relationship with God. Listen, curriculum will never feed your relationship with God. It may feed your intellectual understanding of God. It may enhance your your cognitive interest in God, but it will not draw you closer to him. Only spending time with him will do that. So if you're feeling disconnected to God, maybe the last thing that you need is to stuff yourself with more information. Maybe what you need is to empty yourself of everything that is getting in the way of you turning to Jesus. Jesus. So, pay attention to what a fast brings out in you that is that is Jesus speaking to you it 's an invitation to repent to, to to receive his grace, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Second, understand why you are doing your fast. There are myriad reasons to fast. Maybe you have a big decision. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you wanna deal with. Maybe you're you're preparing for a difficult season at work. Those Those are great reasons to fast. You should absolutely fast for those reasons. But keep in mind that fasting, like prayer, it's not a formula. There's no way for us to just do it so perfectly that God just has to comply with our demands. The Essenes tried to do this. They tried to force God's hand into the second coming by just living holy and piously enough that that he absolutely had to grant what they were asking for. That's not how it works. If God, uh, if that were how it worked, then that would make God subject to human beings, at least really holy, really disciplined ones. But if that were true, then he would cease to be God. We can't use fasting as a hunger strike against the Almighty. So when we engage in prayer and fasting, it's really important before you start to examine your expectations and make sure that they are in line with the actual truth and promises of Scripture. God does not promise to change our circumstances when we pray. Prayer is not guaranteed to change our circumstances for the better, but the, but the promise of Scripture is that prayer will always change us for the better. And so our faith should not be in our prayer or our fast, but the one to whom we pray. Again, that, that not that he will give us what we want, but that what he wants to give us is good. Paul writes, I consider all things loss that I may gain Christ. Every fast... Which is a kind of voluntary loss. Every fast should be for the purpose of gaining Christ, not simply his gifts. So you may choose to to fast for a particular reason or a decision or circumstance. That is completely appropriate. But if you are surprised by your experience, if it is not what you'd hoped or it doesn't accomplish what you thought, then my encouragement to you is to receive that not as a disappointment. But as an invitation because in the absence of God's gift you may begin to hear God's knock and if you open the door to him he will come in and dine with you and you with him let's pray Jesus thank you for being a father who delights to satisfy all of our needs and all of our hungers And Lord, we confess that we have taken them to places we should not have gone. And that we constantly chase after the things of this world to give us the thing that only you have. The only thing that will satisfy us. And that the places we go contradict the way that we were designed to reflect your character to this world. So Lord, we are grateful that you continue to offer to us the bread of life, that even in the midst of all of our wandering that you've chosen to come and die for us, that you gave your flesh and your blood so that we could be rescued, so that we could have the food and the drink that would give us life eternal. Lord, we're so grateful for that. So Lord, give us the wisdom this week to recognize our hungers and also the places that we should not go, that we often go to fill them and give us the strength and the will to begin to take those hungers and appetites to you first to see what you may do with them. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.